Well, last week we summarized the message of the Bible in one sermon. From the book of Hebrews, we talked about uh, the pinnacle of revelation, that the Bible is God revealing Himself to His, to His creation. We talked about how you can see God everywhere. You can see the Creator. You can see His power. Psalm 19 says that the, that the, 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 the heavens declare the glory of God. You can even see His, His fingerprints in the, in the details. It's, trying to give us a, a, a way, a statement for us to grasp how you can see God. And yet, because of the fall, because of our sin, because we come from, from Adam, that nature, sin nature that is within us, that's, that, that doesn't help us to know who Christ is or who we are. Because all we do, according to Romans 1, when we see that, is we remake God in our own image. It, it's enough to condemn us. It lets us know that there's something out there, but we don't seek after that one true and living God. And what we do is we form religions. We, we come up with little idols. We make gods that are like little animals or, or mighty human beings. We, we make gods in our own image rather than understanding what the Bible says, which is that we are made in God's image. He is God. He's the creator. We are the, the creation. And so the Bible comes to us to reveal God. God reveals that He's the creator in the very first chapter. Reveals to us that mankind is the pinnacle of His creation. And then immediately we find what, what our forefathers did when, when they had the choice and were left alone. They, they rebelled against God and, and fell. And the Bible could have ended after chapter 3. It would have been a really short book. It would have told us who God was and how great He was and how kind and gracious and how we completely blew it and went astray. And God could have brought wrath and justice and judgment at that moment and that could have been the end. And God would have been absolutely righteous to do that. But God didn't. He is rich in mercy. And even though human beings did that, God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that He would redeem man. He would, he would bring forth the seed of the woman. That there would be one who would be born somewhere down, down the way that, that would make things right. And we talked about how the rest of the Bible is, is just God telling that story. How He chooses Abraham, how He raises up a people of, of Israel to reveal His law and who He is, and, and how even in, in their history there are promises and there are prophecies, and all of those were pointing toward the day, the moment when the God-man, Jesus Christ, would come into the world. And as we saw in Hebrews last week, Jesus Christ fully, completely reveals the Father. He fully, completely reveals God because Jesus is God. He is the complete revelation. The most significant part of that plan that God tells us is the coming of Jesus Christ. At the right time, God Himself would come into His creation in the flesh of, of a man, in the person of Jesus Christ, who would reveal to us who, who God is and also accomplish something very, very significant. Hebrews, as we saw last week, said Jesus is revealed there in the very first chapter as the, as the Trinitarian Son. He's the eternal God. He's the preeminent king, he's the sovereign creator, and he is the coming righteous judge. That's who Jesus is. This morning I want to take you to a passage to show you what Jesus accomplished. If Hebrews 1 tells us who Jesus is, who he reveals, he fully reveals God, that's only part of the story. We, we, we referenced this last week when we turned to, to Hebrews 10 where Jesus says a body was prepared for him. Part of God's plan was the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas. That 
Jesus would have human flesh. God would come and cloak Himself in human flesh so that He could accomplish the plan of, of redemption. So we saw who Jesus is this morning. We're going to see what Jesus accomplished whenever He came and how that changes everything. We said last week, for that type of invitation, we are invited to behold and believe who Jesus is. And, and it, would be a, it would be a tragedy to reject an invitation like that, an invitation given by, by, the, by the Son of God, God Himself, the, the preeminent King, the sovereign Creator, your Creator, and then the coming Judge. This morning, we're going to see how what Jesus did changes everything how it can change everything, how it did change everything for you if, you are a, if you're a believer. And my prayer is the same this week as it was last week. If you're a Christian, my prayer is that you would think again about what the Lord has, has done for you um, and be filled with thanksgiving. When I was praying at the, uh, um, at the offering time, uh, just some of that's an echo from... from prayers last night. I was driving along alone and just thinking about how, how much of the world just creeps in and how duties that are good, they're not bad, how they just attach themselves to you and, and almost insulate you in a, in a bad way from, from, from experiencing God. You know, you're, when you know, you've been there, you go to pray, and, and you, the purpose in prayer is to focus on the Lord and to read the Word and have your heart refreshed because the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? But then when you're sitting there, you go to pray, you start, and 30 seconds in, you're thinking about what you've got to do right after you get done praying. Or maybe this morning, you're thinking about what you've got to do after you, you get out of here. So I was, just, I, was just, I was weeping. I was crying out to the Lord last night as I was driving along alone, back from, from John and Lorraine's house, just, just begging the Lord to help me, <laughs> to help me to, to, to not be, have my head filled with stuff whenever I want to focus on Him. Uh, it's my prayer for you as a Christian this morning, that you would hear a very familiar passage and that you would, you would be reminded, you would be reminded of the kind of sinner that you really are and really were before Jesus saved you. Um, my prayer is that you wouldn't get used to being saved. And if you're not a believer, my prayer is that this morning you'll hear about your condition without Christ and how much God loves you and what He accomplished for you and that in light of that, you would repent and, and believe in Christ. So open your Bibles to the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2. Jesus did not just come to reveal God to us. He came for a purpose. He says in the Gospels that He came to do the will of His Father. It was the Father's will that Jesus came. And it wasn't just, oh, I want you to come, Son. It was the, the, the predetermined plan of the Father that Jesus Christ would, would come and that Jesus Christ would live a sinless life, and that Jesus Christ would die a perfect death, and that Jesus Christ would gloriously be raised from the dead. That was part of the Father's plan. Jesus didn't just come to reveal God, although you can, you can see God as you look at Jesus. You can see His compassion as He heals, and as He, as he cares for the poor, and, and as as other religious people would, would say, no, I don't have time for the children, then Jesus would say, no, suffer the little children to come unto me. And as, as the crowds would, would come in to try to, to gain some favor or miracle, Jesus would, would heal the man that would be lowered through the, through the roof by his friends. And he would, he would get up and walk away. It wasn't, you can see God in all of that, but, but Jesus came for a distinct purpose. 
And that purpose was to conquer death and completely atone for, for sin. He accomplished a work. He said from the cross, it is finished. Or literally, it is accomplished. It's done. What was done? The work that Jesus came to do that was part of the plan of the, of the Father. And Ephesians chapter 2 gives us details about, about that work. If you want the, the, the high-flying theological part of it, read Ephesians chapter 1. The work of the Trinity is described there. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, what each member of the Trinity had to do with your salvation. But chapter 2, I think we really like Ephesians chapter 2 because it, it, it really gets down to where we live, what, what we understand. Because it describes who we are and then what God did about our, our condition. And if I would give a title to Ephesians chapter 2, I would say it's how God makes dead sinners into living saints. And when we say we are, we are just sinners saved by grace, and that's absolutely true. But the Bible says that we were dead sinners and now we are living saints. Living saints that still sin but it's completely different than the way that it, it used to be. Ephesians chapter 2 will tell us we are hopeless sinners who deserve God's wrath, but instead of giving us that, instead of ending the story in Genesis 3, God transforms us into vessels of grace through the work of Christ, not through anything you do or I do, not through being religious, not through doing works, not through reaching enlightenment, not through any other thing besides the work of, of Christ. If you place your trust for salvation, for heaven, for eternal life, whatever it is, in anything other than Jesus, there is no salvation. Jesus declares that very, very forcefully in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me, but by me. Jesus says, me, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. That's the only way. That's why you will find people. That's really the only problem that people have with the gospel, right? I mean, nobody has any problem with religion. Nobody cares what God you worship. You want to worship God? Worship God. If you want to worship that God, worship that God. It really doesn't matter. What really chafes people where the rubber really meets the road is what the Bible declares. The Bible declares there is one God. There's not many gods. There is one singular. God alone is Jehovah. And Jesus Christ is, is His Son. And salvation is available only in Him. Now, you say that and, and you'll find that Sometimes those are fighting words, even though it's absolutely true. And that's because I heard Adrian Rogers say one time, if there was any other way besides Christ, God played a pretty cruel joke on His Son, right? I mean, do you really think that God would have went to the, to, to the extent that He did? Christ coming, a body prepared for Him, the incarnation through the virgin birth, that Jesus would live 30 years do ministry for three, suffer a bloody death, pour out God, the Father would pour out His fierce wrath on the Son, on the cross, bury Him, raise Him from the dead, and say, oh yeah, well that's one plan, and there's three or four other over here. Do you think that makes any sense? There is nothing other than Christian truth is exclusive truth, or there is no other truth. I mean, there's just no way to believe both. And so, therefore, you have the choice that's laid before you. Do you believe what God says in the Word, or do you not? Well, that's a choice you have to make. But God doesn't give more than one path. He lays the truth to bear before us in Ephesians chapter 2 and declares how He makes dead sinners into living saints. Let's read verses 1 through 10. It says, In you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, were by our nature, the way we were born, 
what is in us, who we are, apart from God changing us. By our nature, we're children of wrath, just as all the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. Now we just read ten verses. Time's sake, we're only going to be able to cover the first, the first four. And, and in all of those, the first seven verses we're going to look at, there are three verbs. Three main verbs in verses 5 and 6. Everything in this, in this section of text revolves around these three main verbs. Look in verse 5. He made us alive together. There's the first one. Verse 6. Raised us up together. That's the second one. And seated us together. That's the, the third one. Everything else in this, in this section revolves around those, those three, three phrases, those three statements. The subject of the verb is found in verse 4. That the, the, the pivot point in, in the passage that we love, but God. <laughs> Don't you love that part? I love that part. I love reading this text and hitting that part. Man, just bad news, bad news, bad news. But God. Okay, there's the subject of those verbs. God did something. He's the subject. He's the one carrying out the action. And then the object of the verbs are us. Look at this. Verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, He, that's God, made us alive together. Subject, object, verb. Everything that God accomplished was applied to us. He did it, and you received the benefit. Praise the Lord. And now you should also note in verse 1 of chapter 2 that this is connected to the previous chapter. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And you, you would never start a letter like that. You would never start, I mean, and you what? And what? There's something before. So verse 1 tells us that, that this is new information but not a new subject. And after finishing his introduction of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul gives thanks to God for all that he's done. And he prays, he prays what I prayed for you and for myself this morning, that we would have a spirit of understanding. Look back at verse 16 of, of Ephesians 1. It says, Therefore I also, after heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you and make mention of you in my prayers. And then Paul describes what he prays. He says, I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and knowledge the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what are the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. God prays, Paul prays that God would give us understanding about the hope of our calling, about the wealth of His inheritance, then the surpassing greatness of His power. And did you know all three of those verbs connect to that prayer? What is the hope of God's calling is connected to? He made us alive. He took a dead sinner and made him a living saint. The hope. He wants you to understand the hope that is in the calling that comes from Christ. He wants you to understand the wealth of His inheritance. We've been made to sit together with, with Christ. We are God's inheritance. We are Christ's inheritance. We are His Promised treasure in heaven. God highly prizes you, which is amazing. And He wants us to understand what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us. Talking about the resurrection. And there's the verb, He raised us up. We've been resurrected with Christ. And because of that, we have living power. 
So he asks God for that in chapter 1 from a spiritual standpoint, and then he gives us the information in chapter 2 to back up that prayer. I mean, it's one thing to say, I pray and I hope you will understand. Understand what? Well, these three big things. Well, what are the details of those three big things? Well, he gives us the details in chapter 2. And he starts with your old condition. To help us understand how God makes dead sinners into living saints, he starts with your old condition. You once were dead in your sin toward God. And if you're not a Christian, you are still dead in your sin toward God. Now, here is... There are only two points to this outline, but I know there's a lot of detail there. They'll leave this up for you. He starts in verses 1 through 3 describing your old condition. You were dead in your sin toward God. He describes your condition, and he substantiates your condition. Your condition described. We were dead in our sins. Your condition substantiated. What do you mean by being dead in your sins, Paul? Well, he says we lived... We walked, we operated, we were. We lived according to the values of this present age. We walked according to the prince of this domain. We operated in the desires of the flesh and the mind. And all of that, the summary statement, we were by nature children of wrath. Let's look at this condition described in chapter 2, verse 1. And you, notice he made alive is in italics. Is it in italics in your Bible? That's because it's pulling from the verb that I showed you down in verse 5. But clearly, that's what he's implying here. In you, he made alive, who were dead in your trespasses and sins. He just begins to describe our condition prior to Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. What is sin? interesting to be able to talk to people from different cultures. I've had a number of conversations with the young men that stay with me. I've had a number of conversations with Govinda from the Nepali culture and others. And what you will find is every culture typically has a list of do's and don'ts, things that are acceptable and things that are not acceptable. Is sin simply what a culture accepts or what a culture rejects? But we're going through a cultural change in America, are we not? There are things that used to be unthinkable that now are acceptable. Just because America changes and says that homosexuality is okay, does that make it no longer a sin? How would you define sin or transgression? Well, we don't have time to go there, but if you go back to Psalm 32, David describes the utter depravity of a human being, and he uses three words. You know that wonderful passage where it says, Blessed is the man, right, whose sin is forgiven. And he talks about your transgression, your sin, and your iniquity. He uses three words to describe human nature. The scope of our sinfulness and guilt before God. The word for transgression indicates the acts. Okay, transgression. God says, this is right and this is wrong. Draws a line. Transgression is stepping over that line. Violating what God clearly says. Remember in our Romans 14 passage? There are things that God commands and He prohibits. And then there are other principles that you apply. The things that God commands and He prohibits to transgress is to step over that line, to go against it. Transgression. Specific commission. Sin is the word for general disobedience. It means to turn from the right path. So, for all have sinned and they've done what? Fallen short of the glory of God, or they come short of the glory of God. It means that God has a target for all human beings, and we, you know, we fizzle out before we get there. We deviate from that path. We, our arrow never reaches the target. So you have commission, you have the arrow never reaches the target, and then the most despicable of the three words is the iniquity. Yes, I like that, even in the English, iniquity. Because it really describes this inner disposition. Okay, why do you step over the line? Why do you deviate from God's path? Because we have iniquity in our hearts. That is a, an utter disregard for the divine will. That's, that's the idea that I want to live my way. 
summarized in Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, right? That's what I want to do. I want to live my way. I don't want to live God's way. And that disposition in the heart that even rebels and chafes against anything that God would, would, would say. Romans 3 covers all of those and, and ends with the summary statement of depravity. What's the, what, was, what is God's summary statement for, the, for a human being apart from Christ? There's no fear of God before their eyes. There's a God who's real, who's living, who's the Creator, and I don't fear Him, I don't even care if He exists. That's human beings apart from Christ. And in that condition... You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's, that's who every single one of you were or are. No way around that, that moral portrait that God paints. That's David in the Psalms. John Piper describes sin this way. The glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That, he says, is sin. He lists all of God's attributes, how God displays Himself to mankind, and sin is a rejection of every single one of those attributes. And that's how you operated in your life before Christ. That's the natural you. You don't have to get there. That's what you're born with. Look at verse 2. Here's the condition substantiated. So here's your condition before Christ, your old condition. You're dead in your sins. Well, what does that look like? Here's the condition substantiated. Notice it says we lived, we walked, we operated, we were. We lived according to the values of this present age, he starts with, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. That's what I mean by living according to the values of this present age. You lived or you followed the course of this world. It means you operated your life based on a set of values, and those set of values were the world's values. You know, people chase what they treasure, what's important to them. And if you talk to a worldling, you talk to an unsaved person, you talk to somebody outside of Christ, you will find, no matter what culture or where it's at, that whenever you boil it down, their values are typically the same. And you also find that a lot of those values are contrary to, to the values of God. And Paul says that, that before salvation, I lived according to the values of this present age. I made decisions about what to do based upon what the world valued. I mean, the world said, make money, have the white picket fence, become a vice president with Anthem, make lots of money, and you'll be happy. And so I followed after those values. Why do people consider abortion is okay or whatever else is okay? You'll find a value system there. If you'd have talked to me prior to salvation, I would say, well, you know, that's not for me, but it, if it's going to keep a child from being raised in poverty, then so be it. It's a value system that was operating in my life. And the basis of those value systems is the world in which, verse 2, you once walked, that's you lived your life according to the course of this world. There's the value system of this world. These values don't come from God. They come from from the world. And those values have a, a system, has an orchestrator or a master. Look at the rest of the verse. According to the prince of the power of the air. Those value systems don't come from God. They come from the evil one. The Bible says the whole world lies in the hands of the evil one right now. The, the domain or the system is governed by, by him. The Bible says you only have two spiritual fathers. There's only two spiritual fathers in the world. You're of your father the devil, or God is your father. Meaning you follow his values, or you follow God's values. Look at the next phrase. We operated in the desires of the flesh and the mind. 
You once lived your life according to the values of the world. Those values were according to the prince of the power of the air, not God. The Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, He's still at work. It's because, Paul says, Ephesians, just because you've become a Christian doesn't mean that He's not working. He's still working. Verse 3, Among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh in the, in the mind. How do we live our lives? What was, the, what was the engine? The value system comes from Satan, from the world. What was the, what was the engine of those desires? Where did those desires come from? The lust of the flesh and the, and the mind. You didn't just sin because the world system convinced you it was a better way. You sinned because you liked it. And because you wanted to. And a person without Christ loves their sin. And, and then their mind finds a way to justify why it's really not sin or really not bad. You know, the Bible says God's written the law on the heart. You know right and wrong, good and evil, it's written on the heart. And so when the conscience begins to bother, the mind comes along and says, well, everybody does it. I mean, it's really not that bad. I mean, you can find somebody a whole lot worse. You have the mind was corrupt and, and it justifies what flows from the, the heart person without Christ has desires of the heart that are a powerful thing. How powerful is your heart? Anybody went on a diet lately? Tried denying yourself one additional bite, one piece of cake after dinner, and you will find out how powerful your flesh really is, how violently it rebels. You take away one comfort or one pleasure that your heart wants and you will find an enemy that you've got your hands full with. It rises up and demands to be served. And Paul here says you're without spiritual life, you had no relation to God, and that's evidenced by your life. Just look at it. It was seen in your values, it was seen in your master, and it was seen in your desires. You had no desire for God. It covers the whole of one's existence. You lived according to the earthly, not the eternal. You obeyed the leader of this present world. And the obedience was seen in your desires and activities of the flesh. And here's the summary statement. The last phrase in verse 3. And you were by nature children of wrath just as the others. You were by nature an individual that attracted God's wrath. When I was in uh, school, we used to love playing with magnets. If you go to uh, Cracker Barrel, you know how Cracker Barrel has like the, the old-timey toys? And you'll see the, the guy with the face there, uh, and, and it's got all of the metal shavings in it. And you get a little magnet thing, you can put the beard on him, which I would recommend to do. Or, you know, you can, you know, put his hair... It, the magnet, the, the metal in the magnet is attracted to it and it moves wherever it is. This says that by nature, your nature was like the, the metal shavings in the wrath of God like the magnet. You were by nature children of wrath. You were born that way, attracting God's wrath. Nothing in there to attract God's God's love. Oh, He loved you, even though you attracted His wrath. But that's because He freely chooses to love. God is love. God loves. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves because He's God. What we attract is, is His wrath. And, and it's, it's evident here. I mean, can anybody say God would be unjust to pour out His wrath looking at this condition? A person who rebels against God, who lives after a different master, has values set contrary to God, steps over the line, has iniquity in their heart, misses the mark. I mean, God's not unjust in giving us His wrath. We live this way, and therefore God's wrath was attractive. You dare not get this backwards in your minds and think that, we're good, and that when we do right things, we earn God's favor, and that His wrath is only reserved for the really bad guy. Okay? It's only reserved for Vladimir Putin, who shoots down airplanes. Don't think that way. The wrath of God is only reserved for the people, Hamas, that do wicked things against Israel. 
you, by your very nature, attracted the wrath of God. Paul says our lives attract that. Think of it this way. Paul gives a summary statement of your condition before salvation, my condition before salvation. We were like the fumes of gasoline to the match of God's wrath. It's a pretty hopeless picture, which is why we rejoice at the next two words, right? If the Bible stopped at Genesis 3, God would be just. If this passage stopped at verse 3, God would be just. But, and God is just. But God is also full of mercy and love. Look at verse 4. After describing our terrible condition before salvation, Paul starts with the two most beautiful words of the verses, but God. Verse 1 of chapter 2, And you, beginning of verse 4, but God. You see that contrast there? (laughs) And you, but God. And now he describes your new position. You are now alive to God. And he describes how this new position was accomplished. So here's the second part of the of the verse. Think of it this way. Verses one through three is this side of the dollar bill or the coin, and the next verses are the other side. He just flips the coin. And you, but God. Your new position. You are now alive to God in Christ. And here's where your verbs are found. This is the emphasis. You're made alive together. You're raised together with. You're seated together. God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up together with Christ. God seated us together with Christ. What did you learn about verbs in English class? Describe the action that's being taken in the sentence. My mother was an English teacher, and she cringes just like some of you grammarians whenever she hears me speak. What did you learn about the verb in English class? Describes the action of the sentence. The verb is the critical part of the sentence. It's sentence. It's the crucial part. For without the verb, you can't make sense of who did what, or what's being done, or what's being accomplished. And a verb has a subject and an object. And the subject is who or what is completing the action, and the object is who or what is receiving it. Brian hit the ball. Brian is the subject, hit is the verb, and the ball is the object. And the subject, these verbs, is God. And the object is, is us. And those three statements is what God has done, what He accomplished in the work of Christ. And that's why... It changes everything. Look at the first one. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, all of that's commentary. But God, here's what God did. God, the subject, here is the verb, made us alive together. He brought us, brought us to spiritual life in Christ. He changed our nature. That's why it changes everything. Try obeying one ounce of the divine will. Try keeping one law of God with the old nature. And what do you get? You get missing the mark. You get a heart that doesn't even want to. It's at enmity with God. The mind is at enmity with God, Romans said. But now you have a new nature. You've been made alive. You have spiritual life, and that which is living grows, and it bears fruit. And you have a new nature and it changes everything. I mean, 
is to where before you only wanted to do sin, now you actually do want to please God. And you desire to do that, and you strive to do that, and you try to reconcile the values of the world with the values of God, and you try to get the Bible right, and you try to you even want to listen to the Bible as to where before it was it was really boring and confusing. And now you have life. It's living. It's alive. And because it's alive, you you get it and you grow. It changes everything. And that happens through through Christ. God's the one that makes you alive. And that comes from his the well of his mercy. Look at verse four. But God, who is rich in mercy, that's why would God do such a thing? He gives the reason. It was his love where he loved us and and that love was in spite of our sinful condition, even though we were dead in trespasses and sin. It's a contrast. Yeah, God's merciful, and yeah, God's loving. That is amazing. But then contrast that on who God is loving and merciful toward, and that's, that's even more amazing. He made us alive. It's a miraculous thing. It's not just given new abilities. It's a new nature. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The difference between an unbeliever and the believer is not that the believer has certain abilities or faculties which another man lacks. It is that the Christian is given a new disposition that directs his current faculties in an entirely different way. A Christian is not given a new brain. He's not given new intelligence or anything else. He always had these. They are his servants, his instruments, his members, as Paul calls them. What is new is that he has a new disposition. He is turned in a different direction. There's a new power working in him, guiding his faculties. And this is the thing that makes a man a Christian. And it comes from being made alive. It was an act of grace. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, He made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved. This is what's called a, a parenthetical outburst. I mean, think about this. Paul is writing a letter. And he's writing to the Ephesians. And he's just like you, just like me this morning. He's, he's reciting the condition of man. And he comes to but God. And, and, then, and then he says, He made you alive. And he just can't contain it. It's by grace. What are you saying? And then he gives the, the next verb. He raised us up in verse 6. We were raised up with him. Not only are you made alive from the dead, you're given new power through Christ, through the resurrection. You weren't just given a new disposition. You were given new, new power to carry it out. Before salvation, you obeyed the desires of your heart which were corrupted. And now with a new heart, you also have a, have a new power. It's made us to... seated us together, made us sit together, raised us up together. It's the two final verbs. This is raise us up. It's, it's talking about the event that's associated with Christ's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that if Christ was not raised from the dead, we are still in our sins. Paul's saying we had a spiritual resurrection. It was in conjunction with Jesus' physical resurrection. He died physically. We were dead spiritually. So as He was raised physically, we were raised spiritually. That's what he's saying. And when Christ was raised from the grave, all power was given to Him. And so, to those in whom Christ dwells, they have the same power. You say, I, man, I look at the Christian life and I, I can't live it. You're right, you can't. But with a new nature, you want to. And with a new power, you then have the ability to carry out what God desires you to, to do. And this new life and new power, we also reign from a new position. Look at the third verb. He raised us up together in verse 6 and made us sit together in heavenly places. So we're not just made to sit together, we're made to sit together in heavenly places 
with Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus. Our position brings us access to this heavenly benefit. We have heavenly status, heavenly power to overcome sin and death. It's the same pattern as before. A believer has not only been made alive, but he or she has been raised. And now Paul says the place that they've been raised to is to Christ's side, and He's been raised in the heavenlies. We're in Him. Now, just what I understand, the way my mind works, I would think that the first verb is the significant one of the list. I mean, I'm dead. He made me alive. That's significant. But the astonishing verb is this one, the one that is, is really the pinnacle. Because it's talking about how He made us alive from... We were dead. We were, we were you know, in baptism, buried in the likeness of His death. We were dead. So we've been made alive... And then we've been raised in the resurrection. And then what happened after Christ rose from the dead? You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing? What? He ascended to the right hand of the Father to take His position as the one who fulfilled the plan of the Father. This third verb says that you have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. The position that you now have is no longer one who is a child of God's wrath. You no longer attract God's wrath. You are seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ. That's the honor that you get. Is that not amazing? That is absolutely amazing. It's the pinnacle of the verse. We've been transferred from being sons of disobedience, objects of God's wrath, to sitting next to God the Father in the heavens at the right hand. And able to receive the benefit of Christ's inheritance. And when Christ returns, there will be a great band with Him that no man can number. There will be those dressed in white and it will be the saints. It wasn't enough that God would forego the judgment that we deserve He saved us. And if it wasn't enough just to forgive us and save us, He gives us power to live. And if it wasn't enough just to give us power to live, He he says that that we're going to be the centerpiece of all of heaven. We're going to be trophies of grace. We're going to enjoy. We are are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ has and owns because of His work, we get a benefit. We get a part in. It's breathtaking. And it's the work of Christ that brings us life. It's the resurrection of Christ that raises us up. It's our union with Christ that gives us the right to be in the heavenlies and share in the the benefits. And why would He do such a thing? How can such a thing happen to you? Look at verse 8. Verse 7, He describes the big theological picture, the big picture, big reason why God did it. Why did God do this? Verse 7, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. It was so God would be put on display, not you or me. So He did it. But how does it come to us? For by grace you have been saved. He's talking to Christians but it works the same way if you're not a Christian. For by grace you can be saved through faith. (laughs) His point is, all who would see what God has done for us, making us alive, raising us, seating us, and that He has done this towards those who are sinners deserving of wrath, it would be a display of His surpassing grace for all eternity. And that happens by grace. What connects you to that is faith. It's not something that is of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. Because then someone could boast. And verse 10 is the capstone. What does he mean in verses 8 and 9? It's by grace you say it's the gift of God. So you can't boast... I mean, he just summarizes in verse 10, you are His workmanship. 
A saved man or woman is God's workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus, and you're created for good works. And these good works God prepared beforehand that you should you should walk in them. If you're a Christian and you read that, your heart ought to be singing. And if you're not, you've you got to look at that picture. You look at your moral portrait and you see how ugly it is. And don't be offended by that picture. It's God's grace that He holds up that mirror. You know, my, one of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon, it's hard not to have many favorite quotes from Spurgeon. And he says, whenever a man speaks evil of you and paints a moral portrait that is black, don't be offended. It only needs a few blacker touches to be closer to the truth. And when you look at that, don't say, wow, I don't like what God says about me. Oh, it's a whole lot worse than what it says right here. I could take you to plenty of other verses that paint, that paint the, the picture in detail of my heart and of your heart. But don't end in verse 3. Go on to but God. God is merciful and full of love. And He offers by His grace Christ. And through Christ, you can repent of living that way. And you can believe. Repentance towards God. God, I am sorry that that you are my creator and I didn't acknowledge that and I lived my life not acknowledging who you are or who you, and what you did. I repent of that. I repent of living according to the world's values. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, I have no hope other than what you've done. I have no hope other than Christ. God, save me. Christ is my only hope. I, I see what you have declared that He's accomplished and, and that's the only way that, that I know that my sins can be forgiven. The only way I can be made right of you and, and I cry out to you for mercy. Please save me. Repentance towards God and faith in Christ. I put my weight, I put my trust in what Christ has done and in Him alone. And I don't care how you say that. I don't care how you pray that. Those two things. It's the mechanisms. It's the, it's, it's the inner workings of what happens in salvation. Your mind and your heart is changed toward God and your faith is moved away from your own works and your own doing and your faith is connected to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You've been made alive. Are you alive? Oh, hallelujah, I'm alive. Oh, I want to I live in a way that is after the values of God. If you're not alive, acknowledge that before the Lord and turn to Christ.